Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You are about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. I'm talking to you today on the anniversary of a very important event. On this day, 63 years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama began his historic escape from the Chinese government's occupation of Tibet. After a dangerous two-week journey where he came close to death at the hands of Chinese soldiers, the Dalai Lama finally reached safety in India on March 31st, 1959. But in more than six decades since, His Holiness has never been allowed to return home to Tibet. The Chinese government's brutalization of the Tibetan people, along with its ongoing refusal to let the Dalai Lama go home, is one of the great global tragedies of the past century. But despite losing his country, the Dalai Lama has never lost his sense of joy. In fact, he is the joint focus of a new film called Mission Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times. His co-star, so to speak, is the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a fellow Nobel Peace Laureate and a longtime friend of the Dalai Lama. The film depicts the deep spiritual brotherhood between these two great religious leaders, one Buddhist and one Christian, during five days they spent together in the Dalai Lama's exile home of Dharamsala, India in 2015. Although the movie does not shy away from the trauma of Tibet, nor the scourge of racist apartheid in Tutu's native South Africa, Mission Joy finds these two legendary activists smiling, laughing, and even dancing together, showing that it is possible to live with joy even in the face of extraordinary hardship. Let's take a look at a clip from the trailer for Mission Joy. There's a lot of shared background. Both of them have deep history of struggle against authoritarian systems. The Tibetan people are being exterminated. Their culture and religion are being stamped out. Age 24, I lost my own country. Amid tear gas and police dogs, Desmond Tutu led a people against apartheid. When people decide to be free, absolutely nothing is going to stop them from becoming free. You can overcome the most horrendous circumstances and emerge on the other side, not broken. Unfortunately, Archbishop Tutu, one of the most beloved people on this earth, passed away on December 26th of last year, just one day after his Anglican church celebrated Christmas. Although we miss Archbishop Tutu, the mission to spread joy lives on in his memory through all of us. On today's episode of Tibet Talks, we are honored to be joined by a man who is no stranger to joy himself. He is a highly respected Buddhist scholar, 
and the primary English translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You could see him in the trailer for Mission Joy, and he is one of the primary interviewees in the film. So please join me in welcoming our guest for today's episode, Geshe Tuptinjinpala. Tuptinjinpala, welcome and thank you for being back with us on Tibet Talks. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. I know we had you on previously to talk about the anniversary of His Holiness's Nobel Prize, so it's great to have you back. It's my honor to turn the program over to my colleague, the Interim Vice President for the International Campaign for Tibet, Tensho Getzel. Thank you very much, uh, Ashwin. Thank you. And Tugden Jimbala, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, once again uh, for this uh, program. It's really great to see you and have you. Thank you. This, thank you for having me back. This is uh, one of the um, advantages of um, uh, this period where we've learned to have these virtual conversations and have guests like yourself here monthly on our program uh, through Tibet Talks. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's true. Without having to leave the carbon imprints by flying. <laughs> so uh, it's one of the sort of the silver linings of the pandemic experience. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's very true. And I mean, um, today our conversation will be on Mission Joy, this film. And I was lucky to come across this film at the end of last year when uh, Mission Joy team did a uh, promotional free screening online. And I happened to catch it and it was so beautiful and touching. And this film, it brought uh, comfort uh, during this uh, time of hardship in the pandemic. So we reached out to them quickly and we asked them if it would be possible to share it with our ICT community. And uh, they were very kind enough to share it for a whole uh, five-day period with us where we opened the screening for our members. So lots of people viewed it. And in conjunction with that, we uh, thought of uh, inviting you and uh, Peggy, who couldn't make it today, uh, for this um, um, conversation. And we will have Peggy at another time. Um, but as we begin, I wanted to first uh, show another shot clip of the film. So uh, for those who haven't seen the film, they get a taste of um, what the different elements of the film it, it brings in because it talks about um, His Holiness and the Archbishop, but also their friendship. So if I may please um, play that short clip here. You are mischievous, aren't you? <laughs> Uh, I consider that person also, you see, mischievous person. <laughs> Unfortunately, that person is Christian. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's a Buddhist. <laughs> There's a question of um, how you think about your own death. That possibility. Quite polite. <laughs> well, he doesn't mind too much because there's the reincarnation. Such a special time um, 
So Benjamin, like, can you tell us your experience being present there during these discussions between those five days, was it? Um, yes. That was in 2015. Can you share with us your experience? Well, it was like a dream. I mean, um, I've had the privilege to serve the Solomons for now over 35 years. Um, so, of course, you know, during all those time, I've had the honor to travel with them, be in many different places. But this particular five-day conversation was a singular moment. That long experience, <clears throat> um, it was, you know, that the presence of the two great spiritual teachers in that room was palpable. And also, uh, one thing that is very powerful of both Archbishop and His Holiness is the kind of the, the not just the presence, but there is a kind of a kind of a deep sense of ease in their body. There's a kind of a relaxedness. There is a kind of a groundedness um, that is, you know, uh, that manifests itself in a kind of a spontaneous expression of joy, and that was really powerful. And then, of course, um, you know, I've had the privilege to see Solomon's interact with so many people, but I've never really seen his Solomon's act, interact with Archbishop in a way that is, there's a level of sort of uh, friendship and intimacy, also kind of uh, frankness and spontaneity in that interaction that I have not really seen uh, with any other person. So for me, that was, um, and I've seen that before in other contexts, um, and in in those contexts, often uh, in the group among other Nobel laureates or other leaders. But these five days were really, although we were there as assisting in the conversation, me interrupting, and uh, Doug was asking the questions, and we had the film crew, but it really felt that we were kind of flies on the wall, you know, just just watching these two great minds and hearts interact. And there's also uh, one thing that is very obvious to anyone who take a look is that there's a kind of a childlike quality in both of these very senior, in terms of both age, experience, and their standing in humanity. But there is this almost kind of pure, innocent, childlike quality, which we all have, but we kind of, in the process of growing up, we kill it out, you know? And that's the tragedy for many of us. Somehow, if one is able to keep that freshness, that ability to see things from the perspective of a child, no judgment, no mm -hmm. evaluation, just pure observation, you know, which is way closer to reality than our own bias, you know, infected interpretations. So that was something that was really powerful. I mean, but for me, for those five days were like, both in the sessions as well as, you know, one of the most powerful experiences was witnessing Archbishop perform the Rite of Sacrament in His Holiness's residence in Italy. That was powerful. And, um, you know, for someone as a religious scholar, I know that sacrament is a very sacred rite uh, in the Christian tradition. And the fact that Archbishop was performing it in His Holiness's residence and allowing His Holiness, inviting His Holiness to participate, felt like, you know, he's opening his most inner door, you know, where the most sacred part of his own personal life 
being shared with his audience. So that was very powerful. Oh, absolutely. I remember that scene very well in the film. And um, the film was so not well, I'm so glad it was captured like that beautifully because it's also part of the book, but also in yes. the film, you felt you were part of that five yes. days there and you got little glimpses of um, of every bit of that, what you're saying. So I was doing a looking back and I think the Archbishop and His Holiness first met in 1990. And after that, they have had many interactions and you were probably part of many of those interactions. What do you think enabled the two of them to become such good friends? Well, I think the friendship, I mean, I, you know, we talk of chemistry, friends and spouses, and so chemistry is clearly something uh, powerful and important. But right from the beginning, when the two of them met, I think they immediately recognized it. Um, you know, if you look at, of course, both of them come from such different backgrounds, um, culturally, religiously, linguistically. But on the other hand, if you look at their life um, and their personality, there's a striking similarity. I mean, Archbishop is deeply, deeply serious about the world, completely committed to service, constantly thinking about broader humanity. Same is true of his holiness. And similarly, Archbishop is in his own personal life, deeply religious, you know, grounded in his own Christian tradition. And prayer is an important part of his daily life. So is his holiness. He's deeply rooted in his own Buddhist tradition. He spends three, four hours a day, early morning and meditation that has been part of he gets up at 3.30 in the morning. So there's a similarity there. And perhaps the most important thing is they are both genuinely authentic. You know, what you see is what you get. Now they don't, you know, when you interact with them, they don't bring any personal self-agenda into as part of the equation. They're constantly other-oriented, they're spontaneous, and the spontaneity is a very important part of it. And also, um, both of them are deeply joyful, you know, individuals can see, you know, despite all the hardships and challenges they both faced and the heavy responsibility, particularly for his holiness, even though he's no longer directly threatened by, you know, external forces because of living in a free country like India, but the, the weight of the expectations that the Tibetan people placed upon his shoulders and then the constant stories that are coming out of that about you know suppression and you know uh, self immolation you know mm -hmm. and all of this you know that he's constantly you know aware of and he's also deeply aware of the historical responsibility he has as the Dalai Lama to his Tibetan people but despite all of this you know at the personal level he is able to remain joyful remain optimistic. You know, and, and often his holiness says that um, the problem with pessimism is you have already given up before you have, you know, you have begun your struggle. So, you know, he, he always discouraged people against pessimism because he says pessimism does not lead you anywhere. Pessimism is an admission of a defeat. Whereas optimist, you know, will always look for ways to get their end. 
So that is important part of it. And then both of them also have this kind of like quality, the ability to laugh at themselves and be there fully present. I think those are what make, you know, His Holiness, one of the things that His Holiness really does, doesn't like personally is too much formality. I mean, he often says that one of the things, the blessings of coming into exile has been freedom from all that formality that was part of these roles that Dalai Lama into that. And His Holiness is very informal, very, you know, personal. And Archbishop is also quite similar, you know, just cut to the chase, you know, get to the point and, you know, get, you know, forget about what other people think, just do your work kind of thing, you know. So there, I think there's a lot of similarities and I think that's what they immediately, I've had the privilege to be at several Notre Peace Laureate meeting where the friendship between the two of them really stand down. <laughs> it's really just striking. Yeah, and, and normally His Holiness is always joking and smiling and if there's yes. somebody serious, he'll always make them laugh. But when the two of them are together, it's uh, even more so. Um, yes, yes. Normal. So there's a lot of <laughs> laughter and joy, and I could just, yeah. you could feel it um, in that. Um. But they both, as you said, had enormous challenges and difficulties in their lives, and yet um, they were positive and hopeful. And not only that, as you said, they shouldered huge um, responsibilities that their communities placed yeah. on them. So we had so many people looking up to them um, and through their actions their message resonates widely with the community with the world today they've reached very widely can you share with their um the core message that they had for the world i think both archbishop and his holiness are deeply committed to promoting compassion is a fundamental human value that should not be just worshipped and uh, admired, but actually uh, put into reality. And in other words, really looking at compassion seriously as making an underpinning of the whole structure of society. Um, so there, I think Archbishop and Holmes are very similar. And also one of their central message is that, you know, when it comes to human experience of suffering happiness, of course, there will be a level up to which, you know, the material conditions, you know, if you don't have a shelter, if you're starving or if you're sick. But beyond that, you know, beyond that basic immediate, then a large, to a large extent, quality of life, if you want. So, overall sense of well-being and happiness, satisfaction in life. These are really functions of your own state of mind. So in other words, both of them are really advocating a approach where the, the ultimate seed for one's own personal happiness. And if you seek true joy as, as opposed to immediate pleasure or instant gratification, if the true joy is a state of mind. It is a sense of satisfaction, you know, which is grounded in having a purposeful life. So there, I think, you know, Archbishop may present sometimes from the angle of Christian kind of, you know, teaching, 
His Holiness, in the most of his general public discourse, he tended to adopt more secular kind of language rather than bringing specifically Buddhist kind of you know, approach. Um, but both of them are essentially carrying the same message that if you are serious about your happiness, if you are serious about your well-being, then taking seriously about the state of your mind yeah, important. And lasting joy does not come from pursuing purely self-interest. And this is where an Archbishop and His Holiness's life them itself stand as a powerful example and testimony to this important point that you know a true joy comes from leading a purposeful life. You know, true joy comes from having a healthy relationship with others, being able to serve others. So that's why when the, all the teachings on cultivating joy is distilled, you know, both Archbishop and His Holiness comes down to this single point of the importance of compassion. So I think in these ways, um, their teachings have resonated really, you know, well beyond boundaries of Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. you know, if that's why you know there's so much admiration um, uh, for these two great spiritual teachers of our time. I, I think those are probably, I mean, in, in, a, in a nutshell, Archbishop and His Holiness are saying that uh, if you're serious about joy, and joy is, by the way, an inherent property of the human mind, essentially, mm -hmm. then if you're serious about joy, then you need to be serious passion and if you're serious about compassion then you need to look at the way you view others and you treat others and and there will you find a true purpose and when you have a sense of purpose in your life then it will you know foster joy in your life so i think those are powerful messages and where archbishop and his audiences are actually striking this moment. Thank you, Tutan Jambala. Thank you. Um, in the film, I recall Archbishop um, Tutu saying that um, joy is not ready-made, that it is like a muscle, that it has to be exercised and strengthened. And his oldness also, also um, talks about uh, educating the heart. Can you help us understand this, how um, well, I mean, the both of them are saying that the capacity and the potential for joy exists actually in all of us. The question is whether we cultivate that part of our nature and allow joy to you know, arise in our life. Um, and so for Archbishop, a large part of that is really seeking purpose through serving others. You know, I mean, in the Christian tradition, of course, service is a very important part of, uh, you know, Christian teaching. And it's no coincidence that uh, historically, um, helping the you know, poor countries, in particularly in education and health in remote areas, has been an important part of the Christian legacy, because it's really an inherent part of the Christian teachings. So um, now in the old days, of course, there is another agenda which is missionizing but the basic uh, idea motivation behind all of this work is really uh, service 
So, uh, an archbishop is making the point that through service, individuals can find a sense of purpose, and the sense of purpose will then allow a genuine, lasting joy to occur. Because we all know from our own personal experience, when we are able to make a difference in someone's life, we feel great. We feel bigger than ourselves. And that's part of human nature. Science would say, today the scientists would use the language by saying, that's because we are social creatures. When we are able to interact and make connection with someone, we are able to powerfully express our so deeply social nature. But in the Christian language, they would use the language of you know, finding a purpose through service. So, um, but for His Holiness, you know, His Holiness, of course, coming more from the Buddhist tradition, emphasizes the technical side as well, which is the, the um, cultivating skills that will help us apply our mind. Because quite often, just as the source of joy, joy lies in our mind, in our, in our heart, similarly, a large part of the problem Source of the problem also lies in us. We know from our own experience that when uh, a certain suspicion arises in us, you know, triggered by someone whom we don't like, then the thought perpetuates a narrative. And if we allow ourselves to go down that rabbit hole, we know it amplifies all our projections, all our paranoia, and then leads to more and more misery. So we know. Mind can play tricks and lead us down to the path of suffering. Similarly, his holiness is saying that we can actually take charge of our mind by learning techniques of mental training, such as the ability to pay attention, you know, maintain focus, bring awareness into situation, connect our intention with our values, so that when there is a challenging situation arises, we are able to bring mindfulness into the situation. And the mindfulness will help us restrain from going further and aggravating So these are part of Buddhist mental training practices. And His Holiness is suggesting that, you know, uh, sort of in itself, these mental training practices are universal. There's nothing specifically Buddhist about them. I mean, the Buddhism is tradition happens to be the tradition that highly developed many of these techniques. But the techniques themselves can be applied by any. And His Holiness is saying that part of this involves what he calls emotional pain. You know, and, and by this, what he means is that learning to bring awareness into our experience because emotions is what often lead us to problems. Emotion is also what leads us to joy, because compassion, love, all of these are powerful emotions as well. But emotions also can lead us to problems, jealousy, hatred, anger, you know, strong attachment, and so on. So what His Holiness is saying is that through mental training exercises, we can learn to bring awareness into our emotion. Because normally what happens is that we take them for granted and we think they are natural, it comes and goes, which is partly true. But what we do not understand, and often a lot of people are not aware of this, is that we do have some say. We, we, we can choose to bring awareness. For example, when it comes to emotional awareness, you can think of two different types. One is the simple awareness of the emotion rising, so the arousal state, and so that you begin to notice, okay, I'm getting emotional, you know, just so you step there, you take a deep breath. And then the other one is a sort of a more differentiated, differentiated awareness. When you're feeling 
you know, disturbed is simply by saying, mm, I'm feeling kind of annoyed. You, you fine tune it. You know, am I feeling frustrated? Am I feeling angry? Am I, is it because I'm feeling jealous? So you differentiate. So emotional awareness, the moment you are able to differentiate it and then verbalize it, already a distance will be brought between the emotion itself. And in this way, you learn to regulate. And when you learn to regulate, then you are able to, you know, eventually you know, catch yourself before, you know, at the stage of the spark, where it becomes a flame. So that's the kind of, you know, uh, key, very important message in the Buddhist you know, training teaching. So his holiness is saying that these are things that people can learn. Okay. And then, so, and, and like Archbishop's example of muscle, mental training exercises are also muscle. You know, awareness, mindfulness, paying attention, the ability to remain focused. These are also muscles, like muscles. You know, the more you do it, I mean, Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying, compassion is a muscle that gets stronger by use. Okay. So, I mean, so the basic idea is very, very similar. And His Holiness is um, bringing a kind of more technical, skill-based approach in the conversation. Thank you, Kupten Jambala. In, in these times we're living in with so many tragic conflicts in the world, with the living through a um, pandemic that has already taken so many lives, cultivating joy doesn't come easy and it's usually many of these other emotions <laughs> like anger and you know sorrow and that uh, consume people um, in these times so um, if you can share some of the resources um, that are available out there i know you are involved in many of them um, um, like the Big Joy Project or the Compassion Institute, the Sea Learning, uh, some of these. Could you share some of these, uh, uh, a little bit about some of these resources? Um, I think, I mean, in, in the Book of Joy itself, um, the editors, including myself, we, um, we made a list of what we call the Eight Pillars of Joy, um, you know, with a blessing from both the Solomon and Archbishop. Um, and one very important, you know, and there are eight of them, but two of them I think are very relevant for current situation dealing with the pandemic. One is what His Holiness calls bringing wider perspective, because quite often the acuteness of our worry and our unhappiness uh, is accentuated by being too fixated on a narrow angle. Because we, we lock our perception and vision on something and then we just get, you know, stuck there. So what he's suggesting is that when we are confronted with adversity, one helpful strategy is to take a step back and take a look at this adverse situation from a broader perspective. You know, so that you, you have a better sense of proportion because otherwise, when you look at your palm up front, it looks just too big and you don't see well. Whereas if you push your palm further back, you see even the palm better. So that placing, situating your adverse experience within a larger context, that I think is a very, and he calls it a wider perspective, that I think is very, very important because even the pandemic experience has civil lines, you know, 
So just you know, whereas if you just fix it, fixate on the negative aspect, you don't see the potential positive aspect as well. That, that is one thing. The second pillar of joy, one of the second, one of the pillars of joy was this notion of acceptance. Now this is a tough one, especially for contemporary Western mind. You know, because contemporary Western mind is very action oriented, you know, activist oriented. We want to get things done now. We want to change, but a degree of acceptance of reality is really. There is this famous Christian serenity prayer. You know, uh, may I be, uh, may I have uh, the courage to accept what cannot be changed, and have the wisdom to differentiate what can be and what cannot be. It's very similar to Shantideva's kind of teachings, and then some element of acceptance. Of, for example, in the early stages of pandemic. I did quite a lot of um, free offerings, mm-hmm. sort of community gathering offerings, where one of the things that I brought was to really kind of encourage people to look at the current situation with a long-term view, so that you don't, you know, because it, you know, I mean, those who are parents know that children, when you drive somewhere, some children. Are so short-term oriented. This is are we there? Are we there? Are we there? Are we there? <laughs> Whereas if you're able to encourage your child to say, actually, we are going to be going quite far. <laughs> we may have some stops on the way. Then they get prepared. You know, same thing. When the pandemic began, that was one of the things that I tried. A lot of people to encourage them to think in long term. Mm-hmm. That you don't have a short-term expectation of an end. So those are part of learning to accept. What cannot be changed, and then finding you know without some degree of acceptance, it's very difficult to adapt because you're constantly fighting up against reality, and your modality is primarily that of denial, resistance, and that causes even more problems. So those are I think important um, you know uh, tools that are now hope you know the good thing is that the pandemic restrictions are being lifted, and the, and the, one of the hardest things. From the pandemic experience has been particularly for younger children uh, who who lost two years um, of social you know through social isolation, and especially for young children who for whom the first few years of life is hugely important for social development, their skills to play with other kids, learning to share. That is one thing that I worry deeply, and I hope. All the concerned authorities in healthcare, you know, um, professionals are taking this issue seriously. What would be the fallout from this? What can be done to remedy this? Um, and then, of course, many people who are living alone in the early stages of pandemic was very, very tough because mm-hmm. you know we are not designed to be living alone, you know, like a hermit. I mean, of course, some great meditators can choose, but then it's a separate issue. But most of us are not really designed to be living alone on an ongoing basis. You know, we are meant to interact with friends and family. But in terms of resources, I think there is quite a lot now. Um, I think the um, uh, Institute that I helped establish offers quite a lot of uh, tools, and then the C Learning Memory offers quite a lot of tools, classroom setting. Um, and then Mind and Life Institute, that is always as co-founded, is also uh, you know, runs a series of 
um, programs and you know bringing experts together to talk about mental well-being um, you know so I think there is a quite a lot of uh, resources and hopefully one of the silver linings of the pandemic prolonged isolation experience has been uh, at the societal level greater awareness of the need to take care of one's mental well-being and also finding ways to learn to apply your own mental skills you know um, I mean you know it's, it is a kind of a Buddhist language but one phrase is to find a way to turn your mind into your own ally you know as as, as, a, as a factor that will help promote your own well-being so I think people coming out of this um, probably will come out with a much deeper appreciation of the power of mind-based techniques and also like meditation bringing awareness and breathing exercises and also um, a deeper appreciation of the need for genuine human connection you know i mean in the west particularly the cultural kind of you know rhetoric uh, often until recently now it's changing up it has been really about independence and autonomy you know uh, and we design our life in the west in such a way that we don't have to rely much on others <laughs> and individuals prize in their independence but the, the the fact is we are social creatures and uh, you know studies after studies on happiness show one of the key factors for genuine happiness is social connection a sense of connection with you know someone people in your lives so i think these things will become you know get greater recognition importance so hopefully um the pain the collective pain that we went through and of course it affected disproportionately um you know towards the ones who are less privileged you know less materially capable and um, but hopefully at the level of society, we'll come out of this with our heart a bit more sensitized, the need of the poor and the needy, and society's responsibility towards them, and also at the individual level, a deeper appreciation of the role we ourselves can play in taking charge of our mental well-being, and also appreciating the value of human connection. In our life. So these are things that I hope will come out of this. There's no tragic experience leaves us unchanged, you know, but it is going to change us. But I hope the changes will also improve. Thank you, Kutan Jambala, and I can't um very grateful for your wisdom as always sharing with us. Um gives us perspective to look at not the palm like this but from a distance <laughs> i think as you say this pandemic through this pandemic we've all um, grown in different ways and hopefully we will come out of this um, together uh, um, in, as a better world for everyone um, but at the same time it's still a lot of tragedy and challenges ongoing so yeah. Um, well, right um, now, everything yes. is uh, on the top of their mind. It's really the situation in Ukraine. Yes. It's just totally shocking, yeah. Yes, yes. So at this point, I think it's time for me to bring Ashwin back. Uh, Ashwin, um, do we have any audience questions? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you both so much. Uh, we do have several questions who come, that have uh, come in from our live audience. And uh, first, I'd like to share with you, uh, Jimpala, a question from Connie Orcutt, who is a great supporter of ICT. And Tencho, I believe you know her well. So uh, thank you for watching, Connie. Um, the question is, when did these two remarkable men first meet? And how many times had they interacted before this five-day period was scheduled? So I believe, Tensha, you said 1990 was their first meeting, but uh, Jimpala, I wonder if you know a little bit more about yeah. the extent of their interactions. Well, I'm not so sure if it is 1990, uh, because I remember His Holiness received the Albert Schwarzer Award in 1980-something, before the Nobel Peace Prize. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Archbishop who, you know, sort of passed on the award to him. If that is the case, then this was in the 80s. Um, so, uh, but in any case, it's very close to 1980. Um, but since then, they have met on several occasions, uh, quite often in the context of Nobel Peace Laureate meetings. And also, um, you know, I remember um, one very memorable uh, meeting they had for a few days that was uh, in Vancouver, uh, organized by, um, by, by a group. Um, um, I don't know my having a senior moment here, the name of that organization uh, that organizes um, Nobel Peace Laureates' interaction with the youth. With Peace Jam. The Peace Jam, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Don Angle. Um, yes. Peace Jam. And uh, the, at the Peace Jam, um, they were, uh, you know, Shirin Abadi and a couple of other Nobel laureates, but Archbishop and his audience were there too. And uh, so they were a few days of interaction, including a, a major public talk by his audience where Archbishop was So they have met, um, you know, on several occasions, you know, in North America, as well as also in Europe. Uh, but I think, this time when they were together for extended period of time, five days, that was very special because that was when, you know, they were there just to meet each other, which is what made it very, very special. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, if I can follow up on that briefly, um, I believe they also had one final video interaction before uh, Archbishop Tutu passed away. Uh, do you know if that's correct or do you know kind of the circumstances yes, of that? Yes, it is correct. Yeah, yeah. The Solomons uh, had a deal with Beijing meeting with each other. Uh, you know, that was, I think, maybe three weeks before Archbishop. Oh, wow, yes. I mean, Very those funny. who watched the movie, there's a, toward the end, there's a scene where Archbishop is in the car and Solomons is standing. And then he sort of, they touch each other's head and there for a little while. So for me, that was very symbolic, and uh, I knew mm -hmm. that this is probably going to be their last. Because both of them are not getting younger. <laughs> well, well uh, on that, you know, we also have another comment here from uh, Giovanni Vasallo, who's another uh, good friend to ICT, and uh, he pointed out on Facebook that um, we just passed the anniversary of March 10th, which is the date of the uh, Tibetan uprising in 1959. So very uh, tragic series of events that happened in Tibet uh, that year. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, today is the anniversary of when His Holiness first had to flee Tibet, and he's never been able to return since. Um, 
as we're passing through these uh, tragic anniversaries and people are thinking about the tragedy of what has happened and taken place in Tibet, um, how would you recommend for, for supporters of Tibet and people who care about this issue and, and for uh, Tibetans themselves, how do, how, do, how do all of us still maintain joy even knowing all of these horrible things that have happened uh, to the Tibetan people? Well, thank you. Thank you for your concern and your question. I mean, as a Tibetan, and uh, who, you know, barely was born in Tibet, so I was <laughs> not even a year when my parents left. Um, of course, the situation of Tibet and the fate of Tibetan people, you know, weighs heavily part as well. So thank you for asking that. Um, I think, you know, what matters to Tibet and the Tibetan people really is ensuring that we survive as a, you know, whatever the formal political administrative structure of that may end up being created, and His Holiness, of course, out of this great magnanimity, has proposed middle way autonomy with no need for redrawing the international borders, uh, current international borders. Um, we have to find a way to make sure that Tibet as a nation, I mean, I, I distinguish between nation and um, country is different. A nation, you know, for example, like Great Britain is composed of nations like Scotland and Wales. Um, um, so we have to ensure that the Tibet as a nation, Tibetans as a people, and Tibetan culture with its unique language and a very long history of this you know, intellectual, philosophical, and spiritual heritage is protected. And so um, I just hope that eventually, you know, some level of leadership of the mainland China will get some wisdom into recognizing actually the protection of these aspects, Tibet as a nation, Tibetans as a people. Tibetan culture and its unique language and tradition is in the interest of, you know, wider China itself, you know, People's Republic of China. So um, it's not happened yet, um, but I hope it will happen. Um, and also, even from a practical side, um, Tibetan history, Tibetan culture, Tibetan language, and Tibetan distinctness it's not that easy to wipe away. It's, it's not that easy to erase because, you know, here we have a people that has a long written history. At least the written history goes all the way back to the 17th. Okay. And at one point, Tibet was a powerful empire with extension going up to the Silk Road and Doha and many of the areas remaining under Tibetan administration. Um, at one point, Tibetans even installed the puppet emperor in Chang'an, the then capital of, you know, China. So, and then the, if you look at the, the language, um, you know, and, and the culture, there's very little connection between Tibetan language and culture with Chinese. If anything, at least the written side of things is really based on Indian, uh, you know, language. 
And if you look at the philosophical, intellectual, uh, high, you know, culture, literature, it's very Indian, you know, you know, it's including poetry, grammar and aesthetics. And it's not just Buddhism, it's very Indian, you know, with Tibet's own three Buddhist kind of, you know, elements incorporated into it. So it's, it's distinct. I remember when I was a student at Cambridge, um, in those days there was a certain openness. There were Chinese students at Cambridge, and I remember having conversations. And one thing that shocked them was I said, look, until the 18th century, when Qing emperors had those connections with some Tibetan lamas from the Andu region, like Zhang Jiaberi was a, a priest to Emperor uh, Qianlong, I said, until that period, you know, no great Tibetan thinkers were expected to know Confucius. But if you did not know Nagarjuna or Dharma Kirti, nobody will take you seriously. <laughs> now, this is the great Indian philosopher. <laughs> but if you did not know who Chuanzu or Confucius is, it's, it's not a big omission. And these Chinese were shocked. And I said, that example alone speaks how Tibet and Tibetans are so different. China and Chinese. I said, whatever the current situation may be, that is the fact of history. You know, and, and I think, you know, educated, enlightened Chinese today, you know, and, you know, and, you know, if, if the Chinese leadership is smart, they will appreciate, and they should appreciate the magnificent You know, asking a people that have been engaged in a freedom struggle to let go of their emotional attachment to the notion of independence is a huge deal. And His Holiness has managed to do this. He has managed to persuade the majority of the Tibetans to let go of emotional attachment to the idea of independent Tibet and said that we could find a way to accommodate and achieve what matters most to us. And the Chinese side hasn't really fully appreciated that the, 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 the the enormity of this, you know, I mean, so I, I hope a wiser, saner mind in China, in leadership, one day they appreciate. Now, and I hope it won't be not too late. You know, once, yeah, once His Holiness is no longer in the picture, mm -hmm. you know, the restraint on the part of Tibetans, uh, uh, not having resurgence of emotional attachment independence. You know, you cannot, you cannot be, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Sure. It would certainly be in the Chinese government's own best interest to negotiate with His, his Holiness or his representatives now, uh, or they can. Um, I have one final question here, and um, <clears throat> this is a little bit of a rhetorical question, but uh, I'll share it. It's from uh, Inga Kunzel, and the question is, how can one not love these two wonderful leaders and follow their example? It has made such a change in my life. Uh, so a little bit of a, a rhetorical question, but uh, kind of a good note for us to, uh, to end this discussion on. Tutsun um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here and sharing your time with us today and uh, talking with us about Mission Joy. Uh, great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Ashwin, for introducing me. And thank you, Tendula, for including me in this. Series oh, thank, of that thank you, Tendula. Yeah, and also, I mean, I'm... Personally, uh, a great, you know, of course, as a Tibetan and former monk, I'm a 
in the Solanes, I had the privilege to, a rare privilege for Tibetan to actually work with them because most Tibetans are his students. But I've had the privilege to work with him and, um, you know, to, you know, I, Archbishop, one thing that Archbishop said at the Vancouver public talk when he introduced his holiness, he said, one of the reasons why so many people flock to his holiness, listen to him, to see him, is he said, because he makes you feel good about it. Yeah. Because just like us, he's a human being, a fellow human being. So for me, that, that awareness of Holiness as an example, someone mm-hmm. who really, you know, in our Buddhist text we speak of Bodhisattva. So His Holiness makes the portrait of Bodhisattva come to life. So that is not a static description in a text, and that's what really makes someone like so powerful. And he has been singularly, you know, influential, right, impactful. In this mission of bringing compassion into the world. I often, in my discussions with you know, scholars and scientists, remind them that actually it was His Holiness's you know, contribution making the language around compassion naturalized, mm. taking it out of religion, taking even just right. from morality and naturalizing mm. it as a basic human quality. That can be studied, that can be measured. I said, I said, later historians will come to recognize that will be a, a singular contribution, even at the ideas level. Mm-hmm. And another thing is that, you know, His Holiness has argued against the popular Darwinian sort of mm-hmm. of human nature as, you know, primarily driven by pursuit of self interest. His Holiness has said, hey, what about compassion? What about sense of connection and nurturing and cooperation? Now, of course, the whole evolutionary theory of human behavior is being, you know, changed to incorporate, you know, the place for altruism. And again, these are powerful impacts of holiness speaking on things reminding. So, you know, for me to be a small part of that is real, real privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, one of the things, uh, His Holiness mentions in the film is, uh, uh, of course, uh, there's the tragedy of what happened in Tibet, but if there's any even small silver lining, it's that for the first time, everyone in the world is able to learn from the wisdom of the Dalai Lama, which was not the case for the previous 13 Dalai Lamas. But for people like us who are, who are people like me who are not, uh, not Tibetan, um, this is the first time in history where all of us can actually hear the words of the Dalai Lama and benefit from his wisdom. So that's been a blessing for all of us to, to live in a time where his holiness is, is here, uh, sharing the world with us. So. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank so you. Thank- and we hope you will come back again to share more of your knowledge and, uh, <laughs> thank you. Scholarship yep. with us. Thank you. Wonderful. So thank so you. Thank you. Thank you also uh, to everybody uh, watching from home. Um, you can learn more about Mission Joy, including how to watch the film at uh, www.missionjoy.org. Um, before we go, we do just want to let you know quickly that there is another film that will premiere soon about uh, the life of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It's called Never Forget Tibet, and it tells the incredible true story of His Holiness's escape from Tibet in 1959. 
The movie uses His Holiness's own words and the previously unknown private diary of Harmander Singh, who is the Indian political officer who helped lead him to safety. Never Forget Tibet will debut in 800 theaters across the United States and Canada on one night only on March 31st, which is the anniversary of His Holiness reaching India, 1959. Um, so we have a 30-second trailer here that we just want to share and then we'll wrap up the program. So let's take a look at that. situation is veritable. Now time come, leave. It was one of the most daring escapes in history. Real danger is there, danger on our life. This is the story of what happened, told through the first-hand accounts of the Dalai Lama and Harmander Singh. So remember that film will play for one night only on March 31st, so please get your tickets soon. You can visit www.neverforgettibet.com to learn more and to find the link to buy tickets. So thank you again for watching this episode of Tibet Talks, and as we always say, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.